This week we are in Parshat Va'era. We are in the Parsha uh, where Moshe is going to confront Paro, who has not uh, agreed to let the people go. And we're going to get the consequences for Paro uh, of the plagues. This is a obviously a central narrative for us. This is one that we reenact every year uh, at Pesach. It is one of our foundation stories. It is part of our foundational mythology. And um, for those of us who are not so interested in the literal meanings of this, in terms of a God who punishes and makes horrible things happen when that God doesn't get God's way. Um, we struggle with texts like this. These, these are some of those texts that we really wrestle with to try to reconstruct, to have them be meaningful. And uh, certainly as our foundation story, it's meaningful on lots of levels. This part of the narrative for me is always difficult. It's always difficult at Seder. It's always difficult to reconstruct. Um, there's been lots of creative attempts to do that. There's been some successes with that, I think. Um, and sometimes it's a bit schwach. It's like, really? Right? That, that's the best we can do? Uh, so, you know, I, I always, I, I move back and forth in terms of my relationship to this particular part of the text. If I weren't keeping myself honest, I would skip it. It's easier to skip it, right? Let's go back to Moshe arguing with God that Moshe's not prepared to take on this job, that he's not a good speaker. That's some good stuff. Like, we totally can dig into that. This is much harder to, to deal with. And so... Um, one of the things that I have found interesting and helpful is understanding the plagues in their ancient Near Eastern context, and in specific, the context of Egypt and its weather and its agriculture and its ecosystem. Sometimes that helps me a little bit, is thinking about natural phenomena in the region, in the area, that if one were to intensify them, a lot, the plagues in some ways would be the result. So this isn't something that just kind of comes out of nowhere. This is a very good um, commentary, Sarna, Nachum Sarna, um, his commentary on this, this, that's why I gave it to you, um, is some of the, the best commentary I've ever come across that deals with the plagues as natural phenomena. Usually we hear them as supernatural, right? And that's what makes them part of our story is that, that yod heh vav he brings them and they are a sign of God's power. I'm not saying that's not true. But when we locate it in what the regional experience of nature would have been and then think about intensifying that a thousandfold, it's a little easier to understand the plague narrative, um, to appreciate the plague narrative, and then for me to relate it to our own time. If our hearts are hard, if we're like part O and don't heed what's going on and don't heed the change that needs to happen, there's an intensification of nature that can bring about utter disaster for all inhabitants of the earth. In this case, not the land, not this region, the planet. Reuben? We including the death of the firstborn. That's a natural phenomenon. <laughs> <laughs> right. So that, that is an, a very, very important part of what's troubling, right, about 
about this narrative. Um, and, and the rabbis who, who, who and even the rabbis understood that, that these are natural phenomena that again, if it's intensified, results in disaster. Um, the intensification is done by God, of course, in this case. Um, and the, the slaying of the firstborn is part of the last three plagues, right? The, that last set of three, um, wherein God pulls out all the stops. Nothing will be held back now. Everything in the arsenal will be unleashed. I, I thought that the commentary was saying that the tenth plague stands on its own. It's not so a part of three the sets, triad. right? So three sets of three. there's three sets of three and makat becharo. So at, coming at the end of that third triplet. Right, it, that that whole third triplet is about pulling out all the stops, and the coup de gras is the slaying of the firstborn. Um, well, I had a we, great deal of trouble with that. I had every seder, so I'm glad we're talking about it. That's right. So it, it is easier to skip it, but I do think it's a really important part of what it means to wrestle with these texts, and we and we wrestle with it starting in the ECC, the Early Childhood Center. Starting in the JEC, the religious school, right? What, how, what do you do with this part of our, of our narrative? Although so, I found a lot of children that I know have a lot less problem with this than we adults. Because we recite it they as, accept a it as a story. They accept it as a story. They accept it as a story, not think as... think about it. Right. And plus, compared to what they see in cartoons and television and whatever, <laughs> it's completely <laughs> believable. Right. Or maybe so, too smart. Right. So it's... Um, it, so it's not that they do. They do accept it. The challenge for us thinking through how do we do this in the ACC, how do we do this in the JECs, what do we say? Because they will believe it. So what do we say? Absolutely they believe it. This is Power Rangers. This is like, are you kidding? This is, they see this, like you said, all the time on television and everywhere else. So what are we going to say at the Seder? So God did this to, I mean, so that's the troubling part is that they do believe it as literal. And that's our struggle with it. Metaphorically, of course, we can go lots of places. It's the literalness that's very frightening. I think my experience growing up and going to Sunday school was that you would hear these stories, and then you, as that was my experience of Jewish education as just a child, and you think, well, the simple story the, the, at the Peshat level, that's where it stops, just a nice Bible story. And how do you engage in adults to start digging into the deeper levels of the text. I think that's where a lot of people, like when I hear Bill Maher on TV, he's always making fun of the Bible. It's always the simple, the simple level. Um, just what children learn, very simple. So it's good to hear that they're learning at a, at a little deeper level now. But also, how do we engage adults to, it's more than just the, what we learned in, uh, you know, Sunday school. But I think part of the reason it's hard for adults to engage with these texts is because they've written them off. Because they were told them as children and took them literally. So if we, if we in any way have this be literally what the kids like here is that's the story and we don't do anything else with it, then they immediately write it off once they you know, have a mind to think about this at all. And what, what the challenge that I'm finding is that they say to me, these are silly. This is the challenge. I work with these bar and bar mitzvah kids who say, this means nothing to me. Because they're silly stories that I don't believe in a God who brings locusts. So it's a real, it's a real, or forget a nice story. They're stupid stories. They're stories that don't, 
They're not even a nice story. Uh-huh. This is not a nice story. Uh-huh. This is a, a, an image of God that, first of all, we don't even right, get down with. But, but they're just like, this is just re- really, really. So why bother with any of it? And then that's where we're meeting adults. Yeah. They, are, they have been given a pediatrified right. um, understanding of Torah that is in some ways so absurd that because it, they stop engaging, right. we stop engaging them, right. um, that you're right, it becomes a huge barrier to adult engagement with Torah. Well, and, and an extension of that was, my point was going to be that if we want to look at retaining people in the Jewish religion, that I do believe that we need to teach in that manner from very young in order that children do not then go you know, and throw it away and in, in addition to including spirituality. I'll disagree with you slightly. Anyway. <laughs> I think the key here is to have our teaching grow with the kids. Absolutely. And to be age appropriate. Absolutely. Because a five-year-old or a six-year-old is not going to find theology particularly interesting, and they find God and the locusts and the frogs and all that a lot of fun. Okay. But our problem, our Jewish problem, is that we don't then as people become teenagers and then adults, evolve the teaching and give people, you know, because when you're talking about people who say, I don't believe in God, and you say, well, what don't you believe in? Mostly it's the five-year-old vision of God, and they've never had this growth pattern. Mm-hmm. Lisa? I think it's interesting. I've seen on the History Channel, I've watched with my boyfriend, and I've seen the explanation on the History Channel, which is pretty amazing, because they go out to explain it and say, how it's like you said, it's not the the dramatic of it, but the core of it and how it, there have been they can prove in history that some of these things can really take place. Right. And have. And have. You know, so it comes out of people's experience of devastation. Right. right? And it comes out of their experience of when the natural world goes wacko because of an intensification of one thing, it has this cascade effect that causes all of these other intensifications right. that cause another one. And um and that is something that is that's meaningful to me, right? right. To really I'm teach like, the danger that, of thought. And I'm like, wow, now I understand how they could do that. Right, and the supernatural part of it, the God intervening part, is that it happens exactly when Moshe or Aaron raised their staff. That that's what makes it miraculous, right? It's not impossible. This stuff is not impossible. Even the biblical authors would have told you because they saw a lot of this. It wasn't impossible. It's that it happens exactly when. Moshe raises his staff. That's the miracle of the plague. And, and on the last plague, actually, one could look at it as an intensification also, because we don't really know anything about Egyptian medicine, what sorts of epidemics broke out in mm-hmm. Egypt. I mean, you had the bubonic plague in Europe wiping out a third of Europe. Now, that was the population as a whole and not only children. But... You don't know that, you know, could there have been diseases that would occasionally break out in, sec- in different places in Egypt that the children say or, you know, people, you know, like just like now, if you have a particularly severe influenza outbreak, it's the young and the elderly. Food, food, food. Right? I'm just, you know, yeah. I'm just saying, if yeah. you want to pursue intensification. Yeah, 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 yeah. 
Huh? I know. Yeah. That's why I said flu, flu, flu. One of my students just told me that there's been more flu cases of the flu in 2013 than in all of 2012. Yeah, because it started months earlier than normal. Yeah? Yeah, is this a fact, you think? Yeah. Like, yeah. That's really scary, right? Like, that's really scary. In 13 dead well, already in, in, peak. right? Massachusetts? Yeah. All right. So, um, all right. So, with all of that, <laughs> um, I want to read a little bit of this commentary before we look at the actual text. So, who would like to read starting at the plagues below the line? <clears throat> Pharaoh's intransigence, as foretold, sets off the extraordinary chastisements mentioned in verse 4. These take the form of ten disasters that strike Egypt in the course of a year. They are popularly known as the ten plagues, in Hebrew, Eser Makot. The Hebrew Bible features three accounts of the plagues. The longest and most detailed narrative is the prose section set forth in the ensuing chapters. Psalms 78, 43-51, and 105, 27 to 36 present highly condensed poetic paraphrases. The three sources vary in sequence, number, and content of the plagues. Psalm 78 makes no mention of lice, boils, and darkness, whereas Psalm 105 ignores boils and pestilence. Due to the uncertain meaning of some of the Hebrew terms in those psalms, it is difficult to determine exactly how many and what kind of plagues the two compositions respectively present nor can one establish with certainty whether the differences represent variant traditions or poetic license. Go on. The present narrative is a sophisticated and systematic literary structure, systematic, symmetric, symmetric, <laughs> literary structure with a pattern of three groups, each comprising three plagues. The climactic tenth plague possesses a character all its own. The first two afflictions in each triad are forewarned. The last always strikes suddenly, unannounced. Furthermore, in the case of the first, fourth, and seventh plagues, Pharaoh is informed in the morning, and Moses is told to station himself before the king, whereas in the second of each series, Moses is told to come in before Pharaoh, that is, to confront him in the palace. Finally, in the first triad of plagues, it is always Aaron who is the effective agent. In the third, it is always Moses. Go on. The controlling purpose behind this literary architecture is to emphasize the idea that the nine plagues are not random vicissitudes of nature. Although they are natural disasters, they are deliberate and purposeful acts of divine will, their intent being retributive, coercive, and educative. As God's judgment on Egypt for the enslavement of the Israel, Israelites, they are meant to crush Pharaoh's resistance to their liberation. They are to demonstrate to Egypt the impotence of its gods and, by contrast, the incomparability of Yudhe-Vavhe, God of Israel, as the one supreme sovereign God of creation who uses the phenomena of the natural order for his own purposes. Take it out. Close it out. Oh, in addition... <laughs> You're not done yet. In addition to this dominant motif of the plagues narrative, a secondary theme is also discernible. Israel, as well as the Egyptians, must know Yudhe-Vavhe. This is made explicit in 10.2. The early Exodus narratives are very clear about the lack of people's faith in its relationship with God. In this regard, the mysterious silence of the Israelites throughout the course of the plagues may well be significant. True, the people are said to be shielded from the effects of the catastrophes, but only in the course of five of them. Nothing is said about this in connection with the others. 
It is only after the culminating miracle at the sea that the people feared the Lord, they had faith in the Lord and his servant Moses. So we don't often talk about what the point of the plagues are vis-a-vis the Israelites. Right? So that it's, it's pretty clear that it's about a challenge to Paro, who was considered a god of Egypt. So it's right, a battle, a confrontation between Yurevafe and the god of Egypt, in this case embodied in Paro. That seems pretty clear. Um, that there's consequences for the Egyptians is pretty clear. And if you notice the, the progress of the plagues, slowly, slowly, Pharaoh's own advisors begin to turn against him until they are saying to him, let these people go. They completely round, they completely round on Pharaoh. It takes a process. So you can understand how, okay, it's about Paro and confront that confrontation between Paro and Yudhe Vafe and about uh, needing to have that trickle down all the way through the ranks of the leaders of Egypt. Okay. What we don't often think about is, what does it mean vis-a-vis the Israelites? Is there a purpose that's educative for the Israelites? And many of the rabbis suggest yes. That the Israelites themselves know nothing about yud hey vav hey really. What they know are the gods of Egypt. And that it takes this experience of yud hey vav hes might and power for them to begin to come around to understanding that there is, in fact, another force in the universe, a force greater and mightier than Paro. This made me wonder, at this point in time in our history, what were we? I think we were considered the Hebrews, the rituals, we had circumcision, um, but was there Shabbat? What, What were the rituals that we know today what made them, the Hebrew people, what made us at that time different? What were we doing? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> so we always have to remember the two tracks that are running parallel. There's biblical history and there's lived history. Right? So there's our mythic history and lived history. Who are the Hebrews talked about here? is a source of a huge amount of research. We don't know exactly who they are. Um, Some believe it comes from the term apiru, which was an underclass in Egyptian society that did not have rights, that were um, part of um, these work forces, you know, that Pharaoh would have imposed labor on the people. And so uh, Kuve, that system of taking them, you know, and, and you, you have to serve your time of doing uh, government building projects, particularly if you are poor or whatever, or have been brought in or are marginalized in some other way, not part of Egyptian right society. Then possibly there are some scholars who argue Apiru was a class. And it's from that class that a resistance to the overlords happened, there's an escape, or there's you know, somehow a, a group of them under some leadership, under some charismatic leader, leave and hook up with the Yahwists in the desert. The desert people who have a Yahwist culture. And 
theology. And that that is where the kind of formation of this other way of thinking, visioning about God and what that means and relationship and covenant and all that. And that's what pushes into Canaan where they begin to take control of key cities, right? And it spreads from there. That's one theory about Apir, about Hebrew. Ivri is the, is the Hebrew for Hebrew. <laughs> is the Hebrew for Hebrew. The Hebrew for Hebrew is Ivri. Some scholars want to say it's from La'avol, to cross over. That they crossed over into Egypt, meaning they come, they're Asiatic, they come from somewhere else and cross into Egypt already with their own culture. You know, it's a, it's a different culture. That, so in other words, that, that already comes into Egypt somewhat intact, these Asiatic peoples. And, um, but what we always have to remember is that, that that's a small group. That's a very small group. The majority of the folks who would have been writing, redacting, reading, telling these stories were Canaanites who came under the control of the Hebrews. It, it spreads, and they, you know, it, it spreads in the region and becomes the, the tradition of the land. We don't think that way. We think we were in Egypt with all of this, and we took it into Canaan in battle. There's no evidence. There's no archaeological evidence for the conquest. So some battles, okay, whatever. But so, they, so this group comes to power that then that story of, of this experience of Egypt and the story of suffering and the story of something miraculous happening and them leaving... And, you know, and being freed from that oppression, spoke to Canaanite serfs who were in a system, a feudal system. I, I don't know if that's the right language, but think, think feudal system. They don't own their land. They're working the land, right? They get a portion of the produce, but not a lot, their, their, their lot is never going to improve. This, this narrative of this group that, that had this experience of escape or leaving or whatever, it spoke to them. It became their story. So what did we have in Egypt? Right. The majority of what we developed happened in Canaan. Does that make any sense? Our practices, our rituals, Shabbat. Shabbat likely is a Canaanite practice already. An awareness of, there, there was an understanding that the, the goddess was represented, the creatress was represented by the moon, and the moon every month goes away, right? That was Shabbatu. Shabbatu. They would, they would um, observe a heart rest as the goddess goes into seclusion, right? So Shabbatu as a practice, when the moon disappears, they go into a rest of the heart as a religious practice. If you take a 28-day lunar cycle... And now if you look at the quarter moon, what have you got? You've got every week Shabbatu. You cannot tell me there's not a relationship between Shabbat and Shabbatu. Right. So, so these things developed in Canaan, not in Egypt. Yes, Sarah. Um, going back to the earlier conversation... There's an earlier conversation. I, I don't remember what it was. 
<laughs> not about Shabbat, but about Pharaoh as God mm -hmm. and Yahweh as uh, an unknown that is not a person and can't be seen. And uh, so I'm thinking that when Nachshon, is that the guy who dives into the water first? <laughs> it's an act of faith in something unseen, uh, some kind of confidence that things will be okay, you know? And uh, going back to our earlier conversation about God and how we understand it, for some people, that can be a very important um, understanding that we can have faith in the future even when something strong is unseen in us, in others, in justice, who knows? D directly coming out of your reading of it for me, mm -hmm. um, it's the belief the faith, the hope in potential, what should be, what could be, but isn't yet, right? So that that, that for me, right, you know, that it's not, that, 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 they, that it's that vision of if we act, even with no evidence that it's actually possible to change this, who had evidence in Egypt that there was any reason to believe Paro could be overthrown, right? We, but, but if we act as if with hope and faith and trust that there is a possibility that exists that we can see, but we, but we vision, then that, it, that is what this, it opens up, right? The sea opens. A new path opens that wasn't there before. The rabbis say, Moshe holds his, what does Nachshon come from? Nachshon doesn't come from Torah. It comes from Midrash. It comes from the rabbis. The rabbis wrote a midrash that said, Moshe holds his staff over the sea. Here comes the thundering army behind the Israelites. The Israelites are panicking. There's an ocean and there's Pharaoh's army with chariots. They can feel it coming, right? They can feel the ground shaking. What, they panic. Moshe holds his staff over the water and nothing happens. Moshe holds his staff over the water again. The people are screaming. Nothing happens until one Israelite starts to walk into the water. And when the waters got to the place where he could no longer breathe, they opened. Right? It was that act of moving forward anyway with no evidence in front of you that there's anything other than death and destruction, right? Drowning, literally. That, that is the, it was that act that allowed the path to open. That's a profound statement, I think, by the rabbis on the reality of creating possibilities that don't yet exist. We have to walk into the water in order to affect the opening of a new path. Wasn't there other Midrashic teaching that he was pushed or that he fell? <laughs> and, and, I mean, not just play devil's advocate, but, but yeah. the theory is that he fell or he was pushed or he jumped, but the fact that he was in the water inspired the other Israelites to follow him and the pressure of whatever, the amount of Israelites actually caused the water to split. And the miraculousness is what you talked about before was the timing of, of Moshe raising the staff and that, you know, because we're talking about belief and, and the, the text said they didn't, they didn't um, you know, fear the Lord until the culminating miracle of the sea, which could also be explained 
Mm-hmm. There, there's another midrash that I love, which is that the men are panicking and fighting over what, what we, they should do, and the women all linked hands and started walking forward. And they pushed the men into the sea, and that split the sea. That it was, we have to move, and the, and the midrash comes from the, uh, when Moshe's crying out, and God says, tell the people to move forward. Right? This is where that midrash comes from, is God is saying, I can't do anything until y'all move. If you stand on the shore waiting for it to happen, there's no possibility opened up. You have to move. Tell them to quit talking to me. Tell them to move. And that's what opens up the, up the miracle. This is not the end of the story. Nothing. <laughs> no, no, no. I mean, there's more. It, well, yeah, there's but more. wait, there's more. <laughs> no, it always strikes me because Pesach has become so important that there's all this emphasis, which, of course, is important on getting freed from slavery. But the whole story, as it was written, of people looking back, is being freed from slavery had a point to it. And the point wasn't just being freed for the sake of being freed, the point was Sinai. I mean, living metaphorically. in two- and that we were freed from something physical to live a moral and spiritual and ethical life, which is really the whole story. And to take it to a full Reconstructionist <laughs> place, we live fully in two civilizations. I think a parallel thing is happening in American culture. I think you're right that because Pesach has remained a historical holiday, we no longer have a connection to the agricultural festivals nor to the giving of, of Torah at Sinai. Right? So it's the what for has fallen off. Right? So we're free, it's freed from, I think we are facing the exact same shift of emphasis in American culture. We are focused on rights and not responsibilities. Our young people are very clear about what we shouldn't impose on them. They're not as clear about what is their obligation as American citizens to this country or to the whatever. And, and I think we're finding the same thing in Judaism. Exactly, we're, we're freed from slavery. Yeah. For what? We're freed from slavery. The text is very clear. I took you out of Egypt to be your God. Meaning, so that you don't put a bunch of other stuff up where Pharaoh used to be. Cars, houses, status, luxury, comfort. Right? But, I took you out of Egypt so that I would be, says God, you know, what you consider to be ultimate and all the things that, that flee well, from Pesach, but, but we don't do Shavuot. I mean, in it's terms a huge of issue. Jews, Shavuot is really, I mean, from the standpoint of what Judaism became, really more important because it is the moral and ethical basis. For what freedom I mean, was about. Right. Oh, I was just back to sort of the concept of the spiritual part of the teaching that if um, what there is to learn is that one needs to take the leap in the face of um, no evidence that that's really where miracles begin for our own lives. I took it in my mind a step further, which helps me because uh, things are so impossible. That I was thinking, it's not just the taking the step in the face of the impossible. It's that that it is impossible is itself necessary to be able to take the step in the impossible. 
Lovely. Lovely. Aviva Zorenberg has has a beautiful chapter on exactly that. That it was necessary for the Israelites to experience their slavery and then this awful process in order, it had to be awful and impossible in order for them to become Israelites. That, that, that Yaakov, as he was dying, is about to talk about the end of days and then immediately the Torah stops and he picks up on blessing his children. And, and everyone knows it. Wait, wait, wait. He didn't talk about what he said he was going to talk about. And a lot of the rabbis say because God darkened Yaakov's vision. Because Yaakov was going to tell them, you're going to go to Egypt and you're going to be enslaved, but it's going to be okay. You're going to come out. God's going to remember you and bring you out. And the rabbis say God shut Yaakov's mouth. And and darkened his vision. Because if they had been told, it, might not. It, might, it, it would not have happened the way it needed to happen. It had to look impossible. It had to really seem impossible for them in order for it to be exact. It's a beautiful, beautiful rendering of the, of the whole thing. Absolutely. Do, do you mean in order for them to understand that freedom was coming and to appreciate that freedom after the impossible? That there's a development of the people. That there was a progression that happened for them that was, huh? You have to know the impossible. It has to feel impossible and unending, in order for them to do what had to be done to become the people in in covenant relationship to Yudhe Vavhe. This is um, kind of a pattern. For parenting, because had uh, the great power been taken away from the people to do their own fighting for what they needed to do, then they would have been infantilized. And that's what parents have to allow with their adolescents and young adults. There has to be the possibility of not making the path all the way easy all the time and letting them do their work of growing up. And, and I think absolutely that's part of the power of always of this story and why it has survived the millennia is that on so many levels it is true about, you know, true in the way that mythology is true, yeah. right? Is that it, it talks about truth, capital T, right? About what human experience of you know coming up against resistance and, and what it takes and what that does for us and the need to develop into independent you know human beings absolutely. This is a teeny aside, but when you were talking about America and rights and responsibilities, my mind immediately went to the gun control battle, and that's where I went. Gun control. Gun control. So meaning that the focus has been on the right, right. to bear arms. And not necessarily on, and what are our responsibilities as a society to protect people from the people who have the guns? Exactly right. And this is a very. (laughs) (laughs) What? Arm the teachers. Right? There you go, right? Because that's going to fix it, right? Well, let's arm the teachers. Israel, as an example for that, they. There's, there, there's a lot going on right now pointing to Israel about that because every teacher in Israel is armed. Wow. 
So, because I think in Israel, there is a greater understanding of the responsibilities of citizens to the state than there is all this rights business. I mean, other than the right to exist, which is fairly like you know intense over there. Um, but right, they have, and therefore they do not have the problem with gun violence. There's a gun everywhere in that country, right? That, Everybody that has a gun, and there's terms. not the problem with right. gun violence that we have here, right? There's they're very much. Israel. They're saying, look at Israel. With all the guns, like and there's that. no shootings in schools. So, all right. La 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 la. la. So, we're going to start this text? Okay, Ruben, keep us from it for three more minutes. I'm kind of torn myself here because we're talking about uh, meanings in the. Uh, the plagues that I hadn't considered, and, and it's great. But I also uh, want to take this opportunity to ask, what do you say to somebody who enthusiastically at the Seder recites the ten plagues and enjoys this, and what do you say to a person like that? Yeah. Um, I steer away from those conversations at the Seder table. Um, but, but I don't use a Haggadah that doesn't revalue them. In other words, at my table for Seder, or any Seder that I would find myself at, um, there's a revaluing of the plagues. So if you look at the Reform Haggadah, if you look at the Reconstructionist Haggadah, there is a discussion of the plagues, and there is a way that they are revalued. You know, what, what are the plagues of our time? Or, you know, what are the ways that if we don't stop it, natural disasters are going to... You know, in other words, there is no gleeful, this really happened, yay, we won. And, and even within... The temptation to do that because you take it literally in some t houses or whatever. Still, even in those homes, a drop of wine is poured out for every plague. Why? Our cup is diminished by suffering, even if it's for the enemy. We are never to rejoice in the suffering of anybody, including the enemy. Well, the Haggadah we use does have the phrase in there. God admonishing the people afterwards that they're celebrating when but as God's children the Egyptians are also God's children are okay but then how do you come how, how, how can you reconcile that with the same God who ordered these plagues so yeah, that's right that's anyway, you're that's saying why it's impossible and it's probably a, yeah. right so we so we don't you know what I mean we, we so we don't focus on God brought the, you know what we focus on is what are the plagues of our time you know what are the things we are called to address in terms of natural devastations and disasters and how can we mitigate those we we just completely revalue and reconstruct and reform that this tradition because we can't we can't reconcile that God or I, I can't So, should we look at the text? <laughs> How long did I manage to forestall? 45 minutes. Okay, good. Another miracle. Are you right? All right, so verse 14, somebody. 14. Page 38. First play, the waters become bloody. No, 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 no. The, um, verse 14, top of the page. Sorry, my bad. Okay. And the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh is stubborn. He refuses to let the people go. Go to Pharaoh in the morning as he is coming out to the water and station yourself before him at the edge of the Nile. 
taking with you the rod that turned into a snake, and say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, sent me to, to you to say, Let my people go, that they may worship me in the wilderness. But you have paid no heed until now. Thus says the Lord, By this you shall know that I am the Lord. See, I shall strike the water of the Nile with the rod that is in thy hand, and it will be turned into blood, and the fish in the Nile will die. The Nile will stink so that the Egyptians will find it impossible to drink the water of the Nile. All right, the Nile River. Why do we start there with the plagues? Because water is Because what? Water is life. Water is life. How about Moses was there? <laughs> Moses was there. Why was Moses there? I mean, as a, I mean, as a baby. Why was he there? Why was he there? Because to avoid being killed. He was there to be saved from what? The order? To kill the firstborn. How were the firstborn to be killed? Drown them in the Nile. The babies are to be drowned in the Nile. The Hebrew babies are to die in the Nile River, which was acknowledged as a god of Egypt. That is how they are to die. Put them in the God of Egypt and they will die. Right? So Metaphorically, this is, this is the danger existentially, right? Immerse them in another God and what will happen? They will die. Their future will die. Immersed in other gods. Absolutely true. So the danger is they will be immersed in the God of Egypt and drown. And the future dies. Moshe is saved from that fate by being put into that very same God, but with protection. With something around him. Mini ark. The ark. <laughs> Mini ark. The, the ark. That's exactly right. The ark that will carry him safely, protected from full immersion, right, in that God of Egypt. Now, we're talking about this people completely coming into their own identity as a people, meaning they need to leave Egypt altogether. So what is the first way this series of events is going to happen? The Nile is going to be affected so that both Egyptians and Israelites see that this representation of the God of Egypt, of livelihood, of fertility, of agriculture, that it itself is affected first by yod heh by this new reality, this new possibility, right? Well, all of life in Egypt is all of life. on the Nile. All of, now, what you, what you will find in Sarna's notes is that the rivers fed by melting snow and summer rains that pour yeah. down from the highlands of Ethiopia and carry with them sediment from the tropical red earth that characterizes the region. Following from this explanation, the plague must have resulted from an abnormally heavy rainfall that led to excessively high rise of the Nile and washed down inordinate amounts of the red sediment. The, so if you come down a little bit, the Egyptians personified and deified the river Nile as the god Hapi, to whom offerings were made at the time of inundation, the time when the Nile swells, the god is most present, offerings were made to the Nile. Because at the time of inundation, what comes after inundation? Flood. Flooding. That is what irrigates the crops and saves them from being dependent on rainfall. Right? Of course it's a god, right? 
And so um, offerings would have been made to the, uh, to the um, God. La, 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 la. Um, so then drop down. This type of calamity is found elsewhere in the literature of the ancient Near East. A Sumerian text about the goddess Inanna tells of three plagues that she brought upon the world. In the first, she turned all the waters of the land into blood. An Egyptian literary work, la, 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 mentions that, quote, the river Nile is blood and the people thirst for water. In another Egyptian text, supposedly centering on the exploits of a magician who was one of the sons of Ramses II, sometimes thought of as the, as the pharaoh of the Exodus, by the way, the young man tells his mother that should he be defeated in a contest, the water she drinks would take on the color of blood. Clearly something that is referenced in the ancient Near Eastern literature, and in one case as a plague brought on by the goddess. We cannot, I don't think, ignore that this is something they have seen, right? That this, if it's too much, too heavy rainfall, the sediment um, colors the waters, and that's a problem. In our case, always, it's about what happens when yud heh vav -Hey has intentions around that. It's not that it can't happen, right? It's that this serves now a purpose of yud heh vav -Hey. This is exactly what happens in all of Torah texts that are originally Canaanite practices. So the, the grain, the new grain at the springtime New Year, the lambing at the springtime New Year, those traditions are there, but now they take on historical meaning for the Israelites and become their Canaanite festivals reconstructed. Because it's based on the, the men would fight. Pharaoh didn't want the possibility of a population that would rise up as an army against him. All right. So, somebody want to read? Oh, anyway. So this is why um, uh, it's possible that uh, Pharaoh's coming down to the Nile. Is this this worshiping at the time of inundation? Somebody want to read it? Nineteen. And the Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, Take your rod and hold out your arms over the waters of Egypt, its rivers, its canals, its ponds, all its bodies of water, that they may turn to blood. There shall be blood throughout the land of Egypt, even in vessels of wood and stone. Go on. Moses and Aaron did just as the Lord commanded. He lifted up the rod and struck the water in the Nile in the sight of Pharaoh and his courtiers, and all the water in the Nile was turned into blood, and the fish in the Nile died. In parentheses, as a result. Okay. The Nile stank so that the Egyptians could not drink water from the Nile, and there was blood throughout the land of Egypt. But when the Egyptian magicians did the same with their spells, Pharaoh's heart stiffened, and he did not heed them, as the Lord had spoken. Pharaoh turned and went into his palace, paying no regard even to this. And all the Egyptians had to dig round the Nile for drinking water because they could not drink the water of the Nile. Finish it. When seven days had passed after the Lord struck the Nile, the Lord said to Moses, Go to Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, Let my people go that they may worship me. 
If you refuse to let them go, then I will plague your whole country with frogs. The Nile shall swarm with frogs. They shall come up and enter your palace, your bedchamber and your bed, the houses of your courtiers and your people, and your ovens and your kneading bowls. The frogs shall come up on you and on your people and on all your courtiers. So it's important that after each plague, there's an opportunity for Paro to change his mind. There's an opportunity for Paro to choose to let the people go and to avoid the next consequence. Right? This is an important part of the narrative. Um, why frogs look at below the line, Tsvardea, during the reproductive period, frogs concentrate in particular areas such as ponds and lakes. As the Nile begins to recede in September, October, they usually mass on land. In the present circumstances, their habitat had become polluted by the putrefying fish. So the amphibians would have been forced to invade the land much earlier than usual, but the dead fish would have been a source of infection carried by insects so that the frogs died en masse. I was just reading it and thinking about what you and what we're all talking about, that these plagues have happened before in the past. Maybe that's why you could have I've seen that before. Part of this has the same, well, wait a second. This has happened before to us. Right, but e even if one has seen horrible flooding before, one isn't thrilled to see it again, no. particularly if... But it's not, it's not to say that it was your God, because I've seen it before. Correct. And that obviously is part of Pharaoh's coming to acknowledge that, hmm, it seems to happen every time Moshe and Aaron leave here. <laughs> well, the first one, the, the Egyptian magicians did the same thing. Right. So he probably did well. Right, so Pharaoh was we a little, do that. That's was comforted, yeah. right? right. And, yeah. and it's interesting that the Torah, the Torah um, is fine with Pharaoh's magicians doing magic, right? Real magic. But in the course, but it's a little, it's a little confusing in the place of the narrative with the Egyptian magicians because th they did the same thing, but the water is already bloody. So what did they do? When... I so, mean, I know the intent is to say that we can do it too. Uh-huh. Right. But, but this is happening after Moses did it. Right. It's so, bloody. So, so it's already sure. bloody. So what did they do? Right. So, so the rabbis have to figure that out, and they, they have water that was protected. Oh, okay. So here's some clear water. Here's some clear water. Let me show you yes. all how easy it is to make it rain. Yes. Okay. Yes. There's only seven days between that and the frost. <laughs> right. um, and, uh, and at the point of the frogs, the water was already bad. Yes. And the, in the point of the narrative, it's interesting that Aaron and the magicians are... They're equals. They are... They are They're the actors. Yeah. So when Aaron disappears... The magicians disappear, right? In the plagues where we have no Aaron, we have no magicians. And it's not until the end that when the magicians come back, we have, you know, so, so it's Paro and Moshe confronting each other. Moshe as the spokesperson, the representative of Yudhe and Aaron and the magicians. All right. So, and here's another place I feel really bad for Moshe, right? Because what does Moshe do? Moshe takes his staff and what does he do? He strikes the water. Later. And it's efficacious. It works. Right? Poor Moshe, who strikes the rock later and gets in serious trouble. It's like, ugh, I feel bad for Moshe. All right. I mean, he's not got an easy job to begin with, but then... When you're talking about kids, I can say my grandkids, this is the plague they love the best. The frogs? The frogs. Because? They look, because they have little frogs, and they sing the frog song. 
Yeah. Um, eight. Somebody want to read there? What, what, what time are we at? Quarter of 11. Quarter of 11. So we're, we're right there. Um, <laughs> I love you, Ruben. Um, so you can read. I gave you more than I, I knew we wouldn't get through this, but I gave it to you in order for you to read more of Sarna. For you to read Sarna's commentary, figuring. If it is really interesting to you, take this. And rather than putting it wherever these sheets go usually when you're done with them, find the place in your home where your Haggadah lives. Find the place in your home where your Seder plate lives, fold it in half, tape it to the bottom of your Seder plate. It's a, it's, it's a really interesting you know, you know, way to, to study as, as you come upon your own observance of Pesach. I want to share with you um, a wonderful... Uh, piece that I found that spoke to me. Um, it's again Nachum Sarna, but it's from his book Exploring Exodus, the Heritage of Biblical Israel. And it's going back to the beginning of our Parsha where Moshe tells God, I can't be talking to Pharaoh. I can't be your spokesperson. I can't be your prophet because I am a person of uncircumcised lips. I can't do this. I can't speak for you. I can't speak well. You've, you've picked the wrong person. And Moshe argues a lot with God about this. <laughs> um, so this is the commentary of Nachum. Oh, let me go back a little bit before his um, commentary. Moshe makes his complaint. God, I am not a man of words, not yesterday and not from the day before, nor from the time you have spoken to your servant, for I am heavy of mouth and heavy of tongue. What is, what is Pharaoh in our text this morning? Heart of heart. He's heavy of heart. Um, it, so literally heavy, and in this verse it means heavy, and is sometimes also translated as slow of mouth and slow of tongue. It's not clear exactly what Moshe means. The only thing that's clear is that Moshe thinks this condition disqualifies him from being God's agent in the task of confronting Pharaoh. Nachum Sarna says, Moshe grew up as an Egyptian, speaking the language of the land, Perhaps he's trying to tell God that after so many years in the land of Midian, his fluency in Egyptian isn't what it used to be. Thus, he doesn't possess the language skills to engage in this task of high-level communication and negotiation. After looking at the various interpretations of what, Moshe's, what Moshe protests, Sarna does something unusual for a biblical scholar, and he goes on to talk, um, Sarna goes on to talk in a way that scholars don't generally when they're dealing with these texts, um, in that, where am I going, sorry. Um, he says that God replies to Moshe that it's not Moshe who's going to have to worry about his abilities, that it's God who is the agent of all of this, and will be so even for Moshe as a speaker, gifted or not. Prophetic eloquence is a divine gift bestowed for a purpose on him who is elected, often against his will, to be the messenger. In these circumstances, experience and talent are irrelevant qualities. This is exactly, says the person who, I can't find their name, who's writing this. This is exactly what is discomforting about these verses. They strip from us all our excuses, all our rationales for procrastination, 
all our lack of self-confidence masquerading as humility. By appointing Moshe, the man of uncircumcised lips, as a prophet, president, diplomat, preacher, i.e. a man completely dependent on words, God is telling the rest of us, you have to get on with your spiritual mission in life, despite your limitations, despite your self-doubts, despite all the problems that seem to be in the way. It's much easier to shrug off the task as beyond our capacities, or to wish fervently, as Moshe did, that God would appoint someone else in our place. Not everyone is chosen to lead a nation of slaves to freedom, but each of us must consider seriously and apply to ourselves Rabbi Tarfon's famous challenge, you are not obliged to finish the task, but neither are you free to neglect it.